Lord Jesus, um, may your word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And Father, may your greater glory be our primary concern. Amen. J.D. Walt says we live in a time of unprecedented cultural chaos, civil unrest, political divisiveness, and spiritual confusion. Neither the public nor the private and nonprofit sectors combined can muster the kinds of solutions that will make the difference that the world needs most. There's only one body on the planet against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And he says that is the body of Christ, the church. And although our local churches live far beneath their God-given potential, they actually do possess the potential. So today we are beginning a series called The Awakened Life, and I want you to stay with us all the way through Good Friday and open yourself up to hear Jesus and see how you might experience for yourself just how Jesus does change everything. Cornerstone Church wants to give you today an invitation, an invitation to awakening. And I just love the way J.D. Walt opens his book entitled The Awakened Life. This is what he says. He says, the invitation is not to commit your life to a cause of this or that. The invitation to awakening is not an invitation to join another organization or buy another book. The invitation to awakening is this, to wake up to the life you always hoped was possible and the reason you were put on planet Earth. The invitation begins with following Jesus. You know, I'd just gotten my MBA and I moved to Sioux Falls and a company named Dakota Care hired me and the CEO was Bob Johnson. And we were going to remodel an old Mike's Jack and Jill grocery store and turn it into a claim processing center in Webster, South Dakota. And he said, Mark, I'd like, you to, I'd like you to be director of operations. And he took me out to lunch after he hired me and he said, listen, if you say I said this, I'll deny it. But you're going to go to church. <laughs> And I thought, you can't tell me to do that, but I'm a good soldier, I'll do it. But I went because I was told to go. And before I surrendered my life unto Jesus, I wasn't happy. I mean, on the surface, I, by all the worldly standards, I should have been happy. I had a, a nice home in town. Joy had a, a home at the lake. We had the four-wheelers and the jet skis and the fishing boat and all the stuff, Right? by all the things that the world measures as success or happiness we had. And don't get me wrong, we had happiness. There were moments of happiness, but my happiness was always circumstantial. You know, if I was having a good day, I was happy. And if I was having a bad day, I wasn't happy. In Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, he says, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. I wasn't happy because spiritually I was asleep. I was going to church, but asleep. I wasn't sleeping through the sermon. You get what I'm talking about, right? Guess what? You can be a good person and not be a follower of Jesus. Coming to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. I'm sorry if you were taught that, but it's, it's simply not true. I was a good person who was going to church, who was also a Christian atheist, I bet you're like, what, what's it? that's like an oxymoron, right? A Christian atheist? It does sound like an oxymoron, but I was one. 
Gallup recently conducted a poll and discovered that 94% of Americans claim to believe in God or some type of universal spirit. But we'd have to agree that 94% of Americans are not serving the God we read about in Scripture. In fact, I'm sitting on the porch of what used to be my fraternity house back when I was in college, where I discovered that I was a Christian atheist. You may say, what in the world is a Christian atheist? A Christian atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. Tragically today, there are a lot of people who know a lot about God, but they don't know him. They have a head knowledge, but they don't have a heart relationship with the God of the universe. And sadly, there could be a lot of people who miss heaven by about 18 inches. You've probably noticed, but on US dollars, there's this interesting little phrase that says, in God, we trust. It's always been funny to me because for Christian atheists, that's not necessarily true. While our money may say, in God we trust, our actions often say, in money we trust. The good news is that no matter where you are with God, Scripture says, if you seek Him, you will find Him. I got nine grandbabies between the age of two and eight. And it's been such a blast. And Joy keeps Dr. Seuss books all over for us to read to them when they come over amongst all the other different books. But I saw some Dr. Seuss books sitting on the kitchen counter. Grandkids were home, you know, for the holidays. And it reminded me of my favorite childhood book, Green Eggs and Ham. Any Dr. Seuss fans in the house? Yeah, a lot of hands, right? You guys know the story. There's this kid. He's never tried green eggs and ham. Never tried it, but still, he's certain. There's no way. I'm not going to like it, right? And then comes along this fellow, Sam I Am, and Sam I Am is convinced that if you just give them a taste, he would love green eggs and ham. But no way. The kid's not having it. Not a bite. I'm not going to do it. Well, Sam I Am is very persistent, isn't he, right? He knows that with just one taste, he would love them. And so he pursues the kid, and he pursues the kid, and he pursues the kid, because Sam I Am knows, if you just try a bite, I'm telling you, you're going to love him. And his determined pursuit pays off, and he finally, I think to get him off his back, the kid says, I'll, fine, I'll try a bite. And with that one taste, to the astonishment of this kid, he thinks green eggs are the bomb. He loves them. He loves them. And the story actually reminds me quite a bit of me and God. You see, God is a whole lot like Sam I Am. He is a pursuer. He's not distant. He's not uninterested. He will never stop pursuing us. God will never give up on us. God will never give up on us. Say that with me. God will never give up on us. One more time. God will never give up on us. I recently watched an episode of The Chosen where Nicodemus meets Jesus under the cover of darkness. Now, Nicodemus was a highly respected religious leader. He's smart, he's well-educated, he's a theologian, and Jesus makes it very clear to him that even though he knows a lot, even though that by today's standards he has the equivalent of a PhD, it's not good enough. No amount of learning, no amount of time in church can make up 
for what Jesus gives us freely. No mentor, no book, no service project or social movement will suffice. Today, Jesus might put it like this. Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you see the kingdom. J.D. Wald asks this. He says, can you see Nicodemus bumping up against the cardboard walls of his religious box? How about us? In what ways might we be in our own religious box? You know, today the meaning of what it means to be a Christian has been watered down by our culture. Today it simply means that you were either baptized or you believe in Christianity. No mention of Jesus. Guess what, you guys? Even Satan believes in Jesus. Even more, get this. The current definition of a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus during his life back then. No mention of today. That's what culture teaches. But that's not the biblical definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. So to be clear, hanging out at the church doesn't make you a follower, and being baptized as a child doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. And you know what? I'm certain that all this information gave Nicodemus a lot to think about. In all of the teachings of Jesus, he would take something that we truly understand, and then he would teach us something with it that we can't yet comprehend. In this instance, birth. You see, Nicodemus blindly trusted in his heritage, right? His first birth. All the while, Jesus offered him an inheritance, a second birth. I grew up in a Christian home, but I perceived God to be a supreme and dispassionate being who you just tried not to make angry. And when I first walked into an on-fire church. I went on a spiritual journey and looked for churches, you know? I needed something. I, I was tired of just going out of church because I was commanded to do so. I wanted to make a faith my own. And I walked into this church, and I didn't know anything about adoption or conversion or any of those things. And I didn't understand. I mean, to me, the Holy Spirit was Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I didn't, I I don't, it probably was taught, but I don't remember knowing that I was supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't know about that. And so here comes the day when the pastor is a conduit for the Holy Spirit, asked me from the pulpit to define the relationship, you know. He said, he's in the pulpit, and he says, you know, thanks for coming, everybody. I'm so glad that you're here. Really, truly, I'm so grateful, but just coming, I want you to know it's not enough. Are you a disciple? Have you made the commitment to follow Jesus? He said that when we truly follow Jesus, that is when we become a disciple of Jesus. And that becoming a disciple, it's, it's just a decision. It's a decision, you know? It's a decision with heavy follow-through, heavy commitment. I hadn't considered that before. I thought a disciple was like apostolish, you know? That it was for people way holier than me. And he said that we need to earnestly pray for the Holy Spirit to enter our hearts that day. And so I made the decision that day to change my title. It wasn't Mark Tracy, comma, director of operations, or whatever other titles I wanted to put behind it. 
it became that day, Mark Tracy, comma, disciple of Jesus. I changed my title. So I made the decision in early 2007 to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to ask for the Holy Spirit until it happened. I started reading the Bible. I started to have a genuine and real prayer life. And I began to worship him outside the confines of church, you know, singing and praising him in the windshield on a beautiful day. I didn't have a rhythm to it, but I started to worship him outside of church. And in my bedroom in late March of 2007, I prayed that the Holy Spirit would come into my heart. And I swear I laid on my bed in the afternoon that day and I must have cried for hours, it felt like. Tears of joy running down my cheeks. Contentment, feeling love from the inside out for the first time. The Holy Spirit entered me that day and the fire is still within. And when Paul tells us to pray continuously, I'm convinced that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we leak. It's not a one-off thing, right? We've got a big hole in our toe. And if we spend enough time away from the Lord, it's like, where did he go? Where's God in all this? Well, he didn't leave. At the church that I was in, at the close of every service, they always sang, Spirit of the Living God. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. And it's singing that song every single Sunday for like a year. It really opened me up to the idea that we really do need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit started changing me. You know the saying, we mean it. Jesus changes everything and people took notice. I'll never forget the day I walked into Cara Berger's office. She and her family live in Wabay, as far as I know, I did ask for permission to use her name today, but as far as I know, she's still the director of claims operations at the same company that I worked. And we were colleagues, and so my office was right next to hers. And one day as I was walking by her office, she said, Mark, you got a second? I said, yeah, I stepped in her office. She said, what is the deal with you? What's going on? I mean, you are happy all the time. And I only had one answer. The tears welled up in my eyes. I said, Cara, it's Jesus. I've, I've found Jesus. You see, as I, as I allowed Jesus to love me, learning to just allow him to love me, I found happiness that transcends circumstances. Jesus really does change everything. And being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, learning from him and allowing him to love me helped me to come to a place of loving what he loves. Did you know that Jesus has three great loves? He has three great loves, and I began to love his three great loves, the three great loves that are the entire orientation of his life. To be a disciple means we're learning to be like Jesus, growing in his character while learning to do the things he could do, developing his competencies. It's about character and competency. 
To do this, we increasingly pattern our life after the life of Jesus. So one of the questions we have to ask is how Jesus would pattern his life if he had your job, if he had your personality type, your family situation, lived where you lived, or made the same amount of money that you make. When we examine the life of Jesus in the Gospels, what we see emerge is a particular way of relating to the world around him. He is very intentional in how he used his time to invest in certain kinds of relationships. It's the pattern of his whole life and ministry. Put another way, Jesus had three great loves that his entire life oriented around. In Mark 9, 2 through 29, we see Jesus go up a mountain to pray. But this wasn't abnormal for Jesus, was it? Throughout his life, he was constantly getting away from the crowds and everyone else to spend time with his first love, attending to the upward dimension of his life, his relationship with his Father. We then see him come down the mountain and run straight into the people he's investing his life into, his disciples. Jesus was never ambiguous about who his spiritual family was. In attending to the inward dimension of his life, Jesus spent more than 50% of his time with just his spiritual family and no one else. But then he steps out into the full brokenness of the world, driving out an evil spirit from a troubled boy. Jesus attends to the outward dimension by dealing with sin head on. He's concerned with how sin affects individuals, how each person is separated from God because of their sin and doomed because of it. And he's concerned that when you get a bunch of sinful people together, they create systems of sin and injustice. Sin creates individual problems and communal problems. Jesus stepped out and brought hope to both. Three great loves. He was deeply connected to his father. He was constantly investing in those his father had given him to disciple and to be spiritual family with. And he entered into the brokenness of the world with good news and asked for a response individually and communally. To be disciples of Jesus, we pattern our life in the same way that Jesus did, up, in, and out. Most people are naturally good at one. They're okay at a second, and they're fairly bad at a third. But rather than simply playing to our strengths, we commit to be learners. The invitation of Jesus is to pattern our life after His, to learn His ways, and to let His power be made perfect in our weakness. But we also recognize that because a collection of Christians is the body of Jesus, we want the full expression of Jesus, not just parts of it, so that these three dimensions saturate community life as well. Whether it's a group of eight people or a group of 8,000, when a group of people is committed to truly being the body of Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins stoking the fires of a red-hot center by which people can't help but be drawn into the warmth of. When we have a spiritual family learning to live into up, in, and out in a communal way, people the Lord has prepared can't help but be drawn in because this community is the gospel made visible. And so now, by the grace of God, I'm standing before you as your pastor of missions and outreach. And this morning, I want to thank you for coming. I'm so glad you're here, truly. But coming here, well, it's not enough. Are you a disciple? 
Are you born again? One of the awful things and failings of many American churches is that they no longer preach that it's necessary to be born again. They imply that a person can be saved by just hanging out at the church. Listen, if you don't want God more than anything else, I invite you to keep coming back for the remainder of this series. If faith for you is ho-hum, boring, and insignificant thing, and everything else in the world is real to you, I beg you, please keep coming back for this series. Jesus told his disciples, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. He's just as Jesus in person talking to his disciples, right? He says, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Did you hear that? In you. Christ in you gives you the power to complete the will and plans of the Lord. He is our helper. He said, I will send you the great advocate, the great counselor. He is our guide in life. He enables us to prosper and grow. The Holy Spirit is the voice of Jesus living in us. I'm going to have a donut right now. I haven't had a donut in a month, which is actually not true because this is the third service. So I, <laughs> this is my third donut in a couple of hours. And I only had one bite each service, so that's the truth. But I haven't had a donut in a month. But I want you to imagine something for a minute. I want you to imagine that I have studied donuts all my life. I want you to imagine that I've dedicated my life to learning about donuts. I teach a donut master's class. I teach the role of ingredients in making donuts. I host seminars on the essentials of donut making, like dough temperature and fermentation. I have won awards in my shaping techniques in making Berliner and braid and donut rings. You guys, I love donuts so much, I own and manage the donutlovers.com website. That's how much I love donuts, right? And there is nobody who knows more about the world of donuts and donut making than Mark Tracy. Can you imagine that with me for a minute? And now I want you to imagine that I've never actually tasted one. I've learned about them. I've studied them. I've made them. I've won awards with them. But me, I've never actually tasted one. I don't know the true joy of donut making. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I am the bread of life. Come eat. Drink. Are you thirsty? Come drink. Drink. Oh, you guys. Eat the donut. Like Sam, I am. Just try one bite. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What do you got to lose? That's what I say. I had everything to gain. God doesn't want to take something from you. He wants to give you a rich and satisfying life where happiness flows from inside of you. It's a gift. It's a free gift. 
All you have to do is open it. Pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, and prepare the way for awakening. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Open the heavens of our time. Let your kingdom break in on our everyday slumbering reality in a way that leaves us forever changed. Each of us must play a part, but Lord Jesus, only you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.